This episode is proudly sponsored by ShakeBay, Canada's easiest way to buy and earn Bitcoin in 10 minutes or less with no deposit or withdrawal fees. It's so easy, even the boomer can do it. Guys, I've personally been using ShakePay for several years and highly recommend them. Their mobile app makes it super easy to buy and sell Bitcoin. All you have to do is e-transfer directly to your ShakePay account and you're ready to go. So head over to shakepay.com or download the mobile app, use the referral code LOONYHOUR and get $30 of free Bitcoin when you sign up. ShakePay gives out free Bitcoin to every user every day just by shaking your phone. They call this the shaking sats feature. It's awesome. I highly encourage you to go check it out. ShakePay has also just launched one of Canada's only Bitcoin cashback prepaid credit cards, which gives users up to 2% Bitcoin cashback on every transaction. If you want to opt out, Canadian dollars and start earning rewards through Bitcoin, go check out ShakePay. Once again, guys, that's shakepay.com. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 57. As always, joined by the three amigos. We got Keith Dicker, Vice Cap Asset Management, and Rich Diaz at Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. What's uh, what's shaking? My screen, apparently. <laughs> you guys give me grief because my computer keeps moving around. I'll try to do better today. Um, Rich has shaking? been in U- the UK, still hasn't furnished his apartment three That's months right. later. Three months later, I just haven't furnished my apartment. Uh, nothing's going on. Corruption in Canada. I was reading Sam Cooper's amazing article about that. Um, obviously, the market's crazy today. I think 5% on the QQQ, which is the tech sector um, index. Inflation data, lots of good stuff. Inflation data, COP27. No one cares about China anymore, even though they produce more of the greenhouse gases than I think most of the developed world. Lots of good stuff, Keith. Tell me what's Slow going news on. Slow Newsweek. Yeah, slow news week. <laughs> I'm just sort of saying with you guys, like there's nothing like any cool, uh, you know, personal stories happening or anything. But no. it, it like it's since last week, there's been so many. Like every day, is, it's been a bit of a, a whipsaw with you know economic data coming out, narratives. You know, the Americans voted again, and right. uh, we get jobs numbers coming out, both in America and Canada and stuff. So I, I think it's just been another just exceptional week market-wise. And now we always keep talking about, we keep looking at, is there a reason to change our narrative? And, and right now, everyone is, you know, all watching the Fed. So, um, you know, today with Thursday, you know, getting the CPI number out, uh, there's a pretty strong reaction to it. But we'll, we'll talk about that now as, as we get going. But today has probably been one of the most unbelievable intraday moves I've seen in markets in a long time. So a lot of these currencies have swung about 3%. It's wild. High, just from just the low the to news high. Week. Unbelievable. Unbelievable day. Yeah, I've been glued to Twitter all week. It's been uh it's been a it's been a wild ride. But um let's let's open we'll open things up here. We'll 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 sort of pain you. We have to get through the Canadian stuff before we get into sort of the bigger, more interesting macro stuff. But um yeah, we had briefly touched on uh, we missed it last week, but we had the Canadian uh, economic update from uh Christopher Freeland. The finance minister there, um, 
so a couple, a couple small announcements, I suppose. So Canada is to impose the 2% tax on stock buybacks as of January, 2024. Um, if you're looking for more sort of debt jubilee type of narrative, the Canadian government is going to make all student loans interest-free. Uh, this includes loans that are currently being repaid by Canadians. The move will cost the government $2.7 billion over five years, and then $556 million annually after that five period. So interest-free loans if you are going to school and taking on student debt. So there you go. Um, I think it's interesting, though, because student debt isn't anywhere near as big a problem as it is in the U.S. So once again, our dear leaders basically just following whatever whatever the wind is blowing down south. <laughs> I guess the hurricane just comes and, and absorbs the political um, the political sentiment up here, which is a bit I mean, not, I'm not saying that people didn't have student loans. I did. My sister did. I, I know people still paying them off. I get it. But the, it's not at all the same problem as it is in the United States. And so it's it just <laughs> makes me laugh. Every anything that goes, I feel like they just watch like CNN and Fox News in the cabinet meetings and go, that's what we should be doing legislating on this week. Uh, Certainly not. I, don't know. I, I just yeah, sold. I emptied my crypto wallet three days ago to pay off my student <laughs> debt. So I, I did that. He's still uh, paying it off 50 years later. Yeah. Actually, you know, when I went to university, my tuition for a semester, take a guess how much it was. Oh boy, here we go. Here we go. One guess each. 100 bucks. bucks for the year. Well, it was $482. Wow, that's amazing. We're pretty close. Yeah, I not say, bad. I was actually joking. I can't believe, like, yeah, really yeah. showing your age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. However, you know, with the, you know, you made a good comment, Rich, that it's, uh, you know, that the economic cost of, of doing that, maybe not that much. Um, and I think a lot of people do appreciate it, you know, that they really will. And uh, so, hey, that's, you know, if you're going to spend money as a government, maybe that's not a bad thing to, to spend it on. Uh, but I agree it, it goes, you. yeah. So we, we go back to the, the other big challenge that the government's going to have. It's it's that it's it's really it would be very cool if they could you know somehow get someone else pay for the interest on the federal debt and the provincial debt. Uh, and I'm sure you know they're going to socialize that, of course. So uh, so all the students out there that are getting the interest waived on their student loans, uh, I got bad news for you indirectly you're going to be paying interest on the on the federal and provincial debt you know for, for the next 50 years as well but uh anyway I, I think that's it? not a, i think that i, I would remind, if i was running the country i whoa, would said, i would what do, do you mean? that no, as well there's no such thing as a free lunch is what you're saying oh that's you're gonna you stole my pickup line that was, <laughs> <laughs> oh man it always comes back um and then sort of last last little news on that we'll wrap that crap up but um, they've got a, so 2023, they just really some of their housing stuff as well. Um, basically saying that they're, so that their foreign buyer ban for January, 2023 is in fact going to be implemented. Still actually waiting for some small minor details on, on sort of the implications of that, but basically any, uh, foreign purchaser that has engaged into a contract prior to 2023, will be grandfathered in. Uh, but there will be that two-year ban on foreign purchases. People have asked me what my thoughts are on that. Um, if you look at the BC government, so BC, I would argue, probably has more foreign capital coming into it than the other provinces in Canada. If you look at the provincial property transfer tax data where they record um, 
people's basically identities or or their their nationalities, et cetera, uh, foreign buyers as they are defined in in Canada and the BC uh, accounted for one percent of all transactions in British Columbia. Uh, basically over the last couple of years. So you're really essentially, I guess you can say, well, maybe we're moving 1% of demand because the reality is most of these people are permanent residents or students or on some sort of visa here. Um, so I don't really was, think it's going to yeah. have any impact on the market, but it's funny because the timing, this, this ban is coming in at the time when nationally we're going through the steepest housing market correction we've seen in two decades. You mean that they're not proactive in their legislation? Is is that? I'm shocked. I tell you, it took them like eight you, years to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, you you glossed over a really interesting thing that I think. Well, I have a question about it anyways. Who knows? Keith will let me know if it's interesting or not. But um, if you have a visa or PR, then you're technically not a foreigner. So you could send your kid to school here as you might do in the Western part of our country and then give them a brief footcase full of cash. They buy whatever they want and they're not a foreign purchaser. I'm being, Correct. I'm being a little you know, cheeky, but isn't that basically what can happen or a PR basically, after one yeah, year? If you're like, yeah. If you're here like working, um, there's all these like little technicalities. If you're here working, right. if you're on like a student visa, PR, that's what I'm saying. It's just like as a foreign okay. buyer, like this, like hardly very any people actually get sort of captured okay. by that. Yeah, uh, what's interesting, we actually chatted about it last week because we said, oh, the Canadian government is going to ramp up immigration targets to 500,000 people. We got some great feedback from our audience, people yeah. that are in the immigration space. So thank you for that. So, yes, if you're a provincial nominee, you have to stay in the province that you're sort of being uh, groomed in. But once you do get your PR status, you can then leave and go wherever the hell you want. So uh, long story short is you can pretty much pick up. and pick. So basically they were saying, so yeah, you know, you might get a provincial nominee in Saskatchewan. And then, of course, as soon as you get your PR, you're like, well, I'm getting the hell out of here. And you end up in BC or you end up in Ontario. Um, is, is the you know what story. happens next? You know what happens next? And you're wishing you were back in Saskatchewan, right? It's <laughs> uh, crazy though. So they're ramping up. I didn't realize this is they're ramping up the targets to 500,000 people uh, in the next couple of years. But in that 500,000, what's not included is what they call, um, I think it's called non-permanent residents, which is basically it's like foreign students. So foreign students aren't captured in that 500,000, for example. And I think we had something like, a couple hundred thousand foreign students uh, enter the country in the last 12 months. So it's like, you're really actually adding not 500,000 people. You're potentially adding like 700,000 people. Uh, but, the, but the thing about foreign students is they go, like, I, I don't, I know, I don't know what it was at, at your university. I know at McGill, they pay like five X the, the uh, tuition, tuition fees and they subsidize all of the Quebec residents and the Canadian residents. So I'm all for that. Bring them down. No, but I think the, the, the university. point being, though, is that those extra 200,000 people, so let's say yeah, you know, now bringing 700,000 people, 700,000 people need a roof over their head. And, and that is demand into the rental market pr predominantly. Yep. So in sure. the fact that we're not actually capturing these people coming into the country under some sort of statistic to figure out the housing supply that you need uh is is kind of i think why we are where we are but i think what what steve is trying to say is that uh they need a realtor right i'm <laughs> pumping my bags right now <laughs> <laughs>
anyway. Oh wait, speaking of speaking of shameless plugs, I want to plug my uh, one of my very very dear friends who's a singer songwriter out of uh, Montreal. His name's Ryan Stotland. RyanStotland.com. Go check him out. He has a new website. He has a show at the end of the month. He's a lovely guy. Anyway, there you go. That was my is shameless he, plug. Is he our next? Is he our next sponsor? Uh, we have let's, an see show, let's see how his show goes. If his show really blows up and he becomes a, you know, he becomes the next um, Taylor Swift, then yes, he'll definitely sponsor us. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, I need, I forgot to do that last week, and I, I needed to recover. Well, there we go. You're welcome. What's free next? Plug. What's next? Yeah, free plug. What's next, Steve? Um, yeah, just so just lastly on the Canadian housing front, like I said, we'll get more in the interesting stuff here. But if you guys have been following the, um. I was getting it wrong. Romspin, Rospin, Romspin. Uh, they're they're private, one of the largest private uh, mortgage investment corps in Canada. Um, so they are basically what they do is right. If you can't get a traditional loan at a tier one bank or an alternative lender like Home Capital Group, you know you go to one of these private lenders. And so they've actually, I think it was two or three weeks ago, they said, "Listen, we're going to basically slowly start." We're basically curtailing redemptions. Um, there's just not enough capital coming up for sort of redemption that to, that we can pay out these investors. So we're kind of slowing withdrawals. Uh, they've now officially gated the fund. So if you had money in with Romspin, which is again one of the larger mortgage investment corps in Canada, they have officially gated funds. Basically, um, there's just not enough loans turning over in the private lending space in Canada. So this is kind of like a a sentiment indicator, I think, moving forward, because the reality is, is we're going to see a lot more of these mortgage investment corps in Canada starting to gate investor funds, I think, uh, coming in the new year as the housing market uh, ultimately continues to weaken uh, or is in a very soft situation. So that that's big news, because I think like if you're looking for sort of knock on impacts, um, it's basically just a tightening of liquidity, right? So these guys are actually basically they're not able to issue new loans so that the credit spigots are getting tighter and tighter. So I'll kind of explain maybe quickly how that works. But so, for example, most of these people, let's say, um, you know, you can't get approved at a bank, you know, but you really want to buy a house, you know, you're, you're trying to figure your income situation, you know, maybe you're a self-employed, you don't have a great T4 situation. So you go to Romspin, for example, and you get a, you know, first mortgage on your home, you know, you put 25% down, they issued the other 75. These are always typically one year terms. And every one year, they'll, the Romspin will make a decision to renew you or they'll ask you for their money back. But because there's no, there's real no liquidity in the housing market, prices are down, interest rates are up. These people don't, they're not able to refinance and go to traditional lenders, which is typically the game plan, right? Like nobody goes to a private lender with the idea that they're going to be there for the next 10 years. It's always a stopgap. It's like, okay, I just, I need to clean up my own balance sheet. My T4 is going to be higher next year. Once I get that sorted, I can pay out Romspin and move to RBC. Now, what's happening is, again, because prices are down, rates are up, people are not able to, to renew, refinance. And we're seeing a lot of situations where the lender is saying, hey, I want my money back. And the guys will like, come and get it. I'm not selling. I don't have the money to pay you out. You want to go through the foreclosure process? Good luck. Because the reality is the market's soft. Prices are falling. It's, it's a long process in Canada to go through court-ordered sales. And so there, there a lot of them are just having to auto renew these people. But if you want your, if you as an investor, you want your money out, 
How do you get it out if they're not having loans turning over? So this is the situation that these mix are going to face in the next six to 12 months. So what I find interesting with this, because I know we we brought up this uh, this story a few weeks back, I think. Uh, you know, we've been talking for a while that the Canadian economy should be entering a recession soon. But it seems soon keeps getting pushed out a little bit because the data, like Rich will tell you as well, you know, the Canadian data is still pretty good. Uh, but you always want to look for these anecdotal stories. You know what what what's happening here, and and what I suggest is anyone that if they think that Romson story, you know, it, it's a one off story, it's nothing to be worried about. I, I think you're dead wrong on that. And so the other thing to think about, you know, in the investment world, if if so, these funds, you know, I think they're probably yielding. Six seven percent, I'm assuming, before rates yeah, started yeah, going yeah. up. Yeah, about six to seven yeah. percent, as you they're targeting. So we like in our world, um, you know, we have things called we call the risk free rate of return. So you go back to academia. So when I was paying four hundred bucks tuition for one whole semester, you know, uh, we learned these things back then. But back then, you know, if the risk free rate of return was say four percent, which the Bank of Canada rate. Whatever you want to earn above 4%, you're taking on risk to do that. So if a fund is paying you 8%, you're saying, hey, I'm getting twice the risk-free rate of return. You know, So that, that's, that's not guaranteed. There is a risk here with it. So when rates were back at 0% or a quarter point, whatever you want to call it, and then a, a lot of these funds are promising they're going to pay out you know, 5 6 7% or whatever it is. You know, that's when, like, as as a manager, we look at this, you know, you know side-eyed and say, hey, hey, there's, there's something not quite right here because something can tip over. But the the for, for everyone, if you're always learning from the markets, if, you, if you're ever invested in something and all of a sudden you realize that liquidity is getting tighter, that it might be more difficult to get your money out, get it out immediately. Because what's inevitable is that, as Steve mentioned, you know they're gonna they're gonna gate this thing, which means they close the gate and you can't get out. Uh, and once you gate something, the next step is is that if when you do eventually, when you are able to get out, you no, know, you're, you're you're not getting par value of what you think you're going to get. Uh, so that that's a little story. So again, like for, with with people managing money, liquidity is always important. We're we're looking for is extremely important. Now now we jump over to the Canadian economic side of this, and uh, you know, is this the tip of the iceberg? Is it something else is is coming up next? But uh, again, we we suggest that we are going to see some slowing data coming up. What what do you think there, Steve? Oh, I was just going to say, Keith's uh, responsible for starting a run on the Canadian uh, Mortgage <laughs> Investments Corp space. Everybody get your funds out. Um, well, well, let me contribute to that because I think we should run over some Canadian data that's deteriorated over the last little while. And, please. you know, this is a Canadian podcast. It's only take a minute. But there is something called the Canadian Composite Leading Indicator. So the OECD, the Organization for Economic Countries, something I always screw up the acronym. But anyways, the OECD is um, is not only a group of com- com- uh, com- countries, but it's also a research kind of non-profit research institute. They have lots of good data. And their leading indicator has basically is at a two or three year low. There's the CFIB. This one I remember, which is the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Their barometer is a two year low and falling. Um, you've got so the market manufacturing PMA market spelled with an I is um, a PMI another company that does survey on manufacturing and services companies. And again, that's starting. It's now, I think, below. Yep, it's below 50. Remember, 50 is the expansion contraction line. 
So that's the manufacturing. Then there's the, the Rich, IV school of economics. Anyways, that's the diffusion index. The diffusion no, index. It is the diffusion index. I was trying not to use that word um, for fear of reprisal, and and I and I got reprisal. It's a bingo, anyway, um, isn't it, Steve? Bingo it on bingo. diffusion index. It's gonna be out of the card. Um, and then there's the IV school, which is I think in BC, right? The IV school of um, of business school. Where is it? In Ontario. Is that Western? Western. Okay, sorry. So the Ivy also that school also um, one of the professors there, and I think it's a, a school of research or whatever. Anyways, they they also produce their PMI, and that is absolutely cratered. And interestingly, the employment number for that series has also come down, but it remains in expansionary territory. So, anyways, it's starting to pile up for Canada, um, and, and it'll be really interesting. I mean, net exports are still a drag. We've talked about investments. Um, remember, we a couple of weeks ago we talked about gross fixed capital formation. And how part of it is non-residential, and then we talked about residential. The residential bit is rolling over like crazy. Anyways, it's it's not the it's not the best. It's not the best. <laughs> Man, I I keep getting all these anecdotal stories, like just talking to people in you know day to day friends. That, hey, you know my friends, you know they're in this situation and. I'm, it's really fascinating just to see all these. I think I really think like normal people, just day to day, nine to five, good hardworking people that are like suddenly caught offside with like mortgage rates going from like I said two to six percent. Mm-hmm. Funny story actually. So I uh, I have a I have one variable mortgage with Scotia on, on an investment property in Alberta. Uh, so I call I call I was just curious right I was like you know you know you know what let's let's like maybe i should just lock this in for two years it's just out of curiosity i floated it uh but i only floated it like three or four months ago so it's you know i kind of knew what i was getting into um so i called them and i was like hey you know just kind of curious if i can take this mortgage and and roll it into like a two-year fix instead and she's like yeah okay sure let me let me look into it It gets back to me and she goes yeah i can give you uh, i can lock you in for two years at 6.15 percent i'm like oh Man, I was like, is that your best rate? And she says, and there was like a payment. And there was like a there was a payment as well because I was going from a five year variable to a two year fixed. So they because you're shortening like the duration of the term, is that they 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 penalize you for that? And she was like, yeah, it's like a six thousand dollar fee as well. And I was like, man, if the, and I was like six point one five. Is it? Can you guys do any better? Can you waive the fees? And she's like, no. Like I just tried. I had someone ask yesterday, homeowner. She, you know, he he did the same thing as you. He took the six point one five and he paid a nine thousand dollar penalty. And I'm like, man, like that's the best going rate for Yikes. two years. Once you're at like this particular lender, is like sick. Like I just don't think these these housing markets are going to work very well with rates at six percent. Yeah, it's, well, that's why I guess consumer confidence is making new lows. <laughs> I forgot to add that one in there. But that's uh, going to yeah, start yeah. to show up, right? I just think like, yeah, it is. There's no sure. way that, like, I'm just hearing all these people that are like, yeah, they've got a kid on the way. They had a pre sale that they bought like, you know, a year and a half ago, and now it's coming to complete. And she's going through mat leave. And, and all of a sudden, they're, they're, they just locked in their mortgage rate because the thing's finally coming for completion. And like they locked in at like 5.9%. And like their payments are like exorbitantly high relative to their income because, the, you know what I mean? It's just, it's really fascinating. So I think we're going to see a uh, continued slowdown, which we'll get into here. So, so what's interesting with all this, um, 
so we're getting anecdotal stories about things are you know they're getting tighter um but yet national data points are not entirely suggesting that especially the jobs data which which rich will dive into there in in a minute um but something will you know break here at some points what the anecdotal stories will get reflected in the national data points that that's coming up that that's I think it already point. is yeah i think it already is you could you could argue it, it already is with the pmis and, and some of the uh the business confidence stuff and consumer confidence i think it already is actually so rich but i have a question yep. for you are you you're looking at the canadian data and canadian data is let's take out the grain of salt but do you look at that today and go this all looks quite weak or are you feeling no nah, it's not that bad or what's your what's your like quick quick take on that i think if it was in taken in isolation i'd say you know maybe we've already had the recession maybe the you know maybe but i think because you know, that's the case you could i'm not going to get into it but you could make that case for the us saying there's been already quite a bit of negativity there and maybe you've had you know who knows but i think the problem you have is you know i look at euro area pmis they're all the major countries so france italy germany spain and then you know the rest um, those four countries make up like 75% of the GDP in your area. So that's what really matters. But anyway, those, those, those PMIs have rolled over. You've got, you know, the Centix economic indicator, DG ECFIN, um, which is department general of economic finance. Like the, every indicator is, 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 is down consumer confidence across the world is down. Um, except for India, for some reason, India's consumer confidence keeps rising. But my point is if you, so because you have all these sort of corroborating evidence, um, you know, you have real interest rates that are tighter. You have mortgage rates in the U.S. that are, you have credit spreads that are wide. And I mean, you just, it, like, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing after another thing after another thing to the point where I, I really can't off the top of my head think of something that's unambiguously positive. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's a real issue. And so if, because that's true, um, Canada's in a situation where, you know, you're going to have, yeah, it's just it, it's very, very tough to fight against that current. Let's just say you have domestic negative current, which is par partly to do with housing and real and real higher rates. And then you have a global current that's also going. And so it, it's it's tough, man. Um, I some, oh, I know. I, have... I know one that I know one piece of data that's unambiguously positive immigration. <laughs> no, I've got another one for you. Jobs numbers. 10 right. times oh, higher right. than expectations. Yeah, so that's it, it, that. well it came in at 108,000 for the for the month which was 10 times better bigger than expectations which is significant. I mean, I can't swear let's, to this. Let's say it's I, statistically impossible. But go ahead. <laughs> I mean, okay, Keith Keith said it, but like so the total number of people employed for people who like to know these things in Canada is 19.7 million. Uh, we have a participation rate that's like relatively high. I think it's higher than you. It's like in the 60s or so or in the 70s. I can't remember now. Anyway, um, no, 64, 64 and a half, whatever it is. And I think that that employment rate is directly related to the fact that we just had one of the banner years immigration in the last 50 years or so. The problem, I've we've discussed this before, it's not about that, that kind of art, artificially prop up um, your your country's economy and it's and it you know nominal nominal gdp is a hell of a drug man like you have a, you have enough people coming into your country and you can paper over a lot of bad stuff the problem is you know you can only do that so long before a the reality kind of bites b 
you get political stress. C, you get stress on existing infrastructure. There's a lot of stuff, of course. But uh, I think in general, I think that that's, it's, it's, like I said, it's very, very useful. You let a lot of people into your country and you can paper over all kinds of shit data, which is mortgage, mortgage lending is starting to go down. Retail sales per capita is going down. Um, inventories are up, which is bad, right? I mean, that's, that means co companies have to absorb some losses on that. Um, we house prices are going down. Um, anyway, so it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it'll be interesting to see over the next six months. Obviously we'll keep people posted. Stay tuned to the Looney Hour, the best podcast on online, of course, but it'll be interesting to see a, if people start, if immigrants or people who are prospective immigrants to Canada, you know, they might be invited, they might be allowed in, but they might choose not to, right. Given what's going on globally, they might worry about finding a job in Canada. They might worry about funding their trip here or there. I mean, you know what I mean? So it's, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, see how that plays out. Yeah. Okay. Let's, 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 let's come back to reality for a yeah. second. Let, let, let's, let's do that. Um, so there <laughs> what was, did some... I say that was controversial. I didn't say anything that was controversial. controversial. Um, <laughs> so remember every, everything fits together here. So uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a bank of Canada, they came out and they raised rates by 50 basis points, which, which equaled a real nice lemon loaf. From, from Starbucks. People are upset way. about that, by the way. You still owe us a Twinkie, and we're going to hold yeah. you to that. Continue. Yeah. If that's what gets people upset, we're nowhere near a recession or a bad time yet. Ah. That's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Like, what's uh, next? Remember, are you going to pull like a slice of apple pie in the next one? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually made uh, some date squares a couple of days ago. I love oh, date boy. squares. If oh, you know yeah, what they well. are, you, you know what they are. Um, However, with so, so again, the Bank of Canada, it, you know, they and, and I said they did a soft pivot because they were one percent pricing to seventy five basis points hike, and they only did they only did fifty, and uh, it had nothing to do with the Looney Hour, you know, uh, Twinkie bet. That's not why they did fifty. Now that we're seeing some soft data coming out, like for, for the Robson funds, for example, some of the bank data and on loans is, again, there's a lot of stories, something spooked them in the market. Uh, as well, I want to comment, remember last week we comment on the Bank of Canada QE for overnight operations, and I said it's a bit, a bit funny, I have some more filler news on that as well. But the Bank of Canada, they did this for a reason, because they know that, okay, if they continue to hike aggressively, it increased the probability of a hard landing and, and they don't want a hard landing, right? Cause you know, they, a lot of people barking at them right now for, from Ottawa for this. Uh, so they, they went a bit light and now all of a sudden we get this jobs number coming in out of the blue. And I don't know when the bank of Canada, when they get the number, they'll tell you they get the same time as everyone else, but I'm not a believer in that story, but for it to come out so strong, it, it again, it suggests to them, or what the market would say, well, you have to start hiking more aggressively now. So it increased even more uncertainty on what the Bank of Canada is going to do. And, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, why it came out to be 108,000, I think it's sort of irrelevant. The point is, like, the, the sharpest guys in the country that followed this very closely, collectively, they thought it'd be like a 10,000 number. That's it. Uh, to come out 10 times, I suggest what's going to happen. This number will get either revised away or we'll have a very sharp negative number coming up. I've seen that in the past with this jobs number. Just say, I remember a few years ago, it was like minus, sorry, it was like plus 200 and something thousand. And then, then 
for the next two months, it was like minus 125 each, which exactly canceled out the, you know, the, the big surprise number. But this number is going to get adjusted. To put things into perspective, how much larger is the American American population relative to the Canadian? 10x. Let's say 10x, basically. 10X, there's, right. 100, there's 140 odd million people who work in the 150 million people work in the US. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And you said the Canadian number is like 19 million, I think you said, Rich, for workers? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it so, depends how you calculate the workers, but basically there's 153 million people who are in the non-farm payrolls in the U.S. So the Canadian, so the American equivalent number was 193,000 for the month. Last month? No, it was 261, I thought. But anyways, it doesn't matter. It, 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 was, it was 193. And, uh, but the point is that now we have the Canadian economy, which is 10 times smaller than the American one, you know, produced half as many jobs. And again, this is where I say the American data points are actually really good. So you, that's why there's a lot of attention paid to them. And for the Canadian ones, not as much. So when we get a big reaction from it, um, you have to realize, okay, you know, that this this is shuffled around a lot of the a lot of the chairs on, on deck and, and something will change with this. But I, I promise you the Bank of Canada looking at that number they're thinking oh boy you know now we're getting pushed back into uh get into a tough so a tough spot so what you're saying is that we're setting the most important price metric the price of money on some very questionable data uh stats the stats can random number generator no i don't think that i just think that where the media and, and markets are placing more emphasis on the jobs data than what the, the bank of canada okay. would okay. be good to know do you see what i mean like the, yeah. the other way around yeah that's what i think with it so um, we got a, we got a lot to uh to get through so i'm gonna i'm gonna have to switch gears here and get out of uh canada land but um you know one of the things that we bank of canada has obviously been talking about the last meeting was financial stability concerns and you know, we've certainly been talking a lot about the podcast here of all these, you know, financial stability concerns as well and things that are happening in markets. And and there's just been uh, a barrage of events happening this week. Um, we've had a bunch of listeners obviously messaging us. We appreciate that. Uh, but you can't, can't go unnoticed is uh, FTX uh, exchange, so the cryptocurrency exchange not shake pay god bless them uh ftx the second largest cryptocurrency exchange um is, is basically insolvent um so they they seeked out a bailout I, I mean i can walk you through the whole the whole picture but basically so my understanding is i'm not i haven't been following this too too closely um so Binance is number one they're the largest cryptocurrency exchange i've actually used them as well uh ftx is your second largest crypto exchange. And so Binance and FTX, I guess they were kind of buddy buddies. Um, Binance figured out that something's wrong with FTX. They basically pulled a bunch of their funds. It sent uh, FTX's sort of stable coin, I believe, uh, you know, crumbling. And uh, so I guess the rumor is, is that FTX also has a hedge fund called Almeida. Rich, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's right. I think that's right. So there's the belief that basically they've been siphoning funds from FTX over to Almeida to basically paper over. I guess they, I think apparently they blew up during uh, the Three Arrows Capital debacle many, many months ago. It's kind of like that old story, right? Like there's never just one cockroach. Like there's never just like this isolated event. And so they believe that this is all stemmed from significant losses 
at FTX's sort of hedge fund. And so um, they've basically been using client deposits, uh, I think, to offset <laughs> those losses over there. And and I guess Binance was one of the early people to sort of figure that out and and basically sort of pulling their funds out of out of FTX or whatever. Uh, anyways, that's a long winded answer. I'm sure people will chime in and correct me that I've made some mistakes there, but that's kind of what's going on. And so now you basically have um, what was that? everyone was calling Sam Bankman Freed the the next Warren Buffett, uh, you know, four months ago because he was coming in. So he was responsible for bailing out uh, some of the other larger cryptocurrencies. He was trying to help out Celsius, which went under. He helped out BlockFi, which is a massive, massive company. So he was kind of like. People were calling him like the JP Morgan of like crypto, where he would come in, like bail out sort of all the people that need the bailouts, and he would sort of accumulate all these big, great companies. And now, of course, he's the one uh, that's going under, you know, four months later. So, I, I Rich, I don't know if you have any comments, but it's, it's, and it's an incredible story. And now we're going to see really where the contagion is and, and, and all the bodies are floating up. I just think it's just, um, I mean, I don't have much to add to the, to the FTX thing. I, I don't, I, I only think of Bitcoin in, in, in um, res- with respect to its li- liquidity issues, which is, I think, part of what's going on. And, um, and, you know, that's, I think that's what we're seeing when you have, what is it, when the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing shorts and who's not, and who's naked. I think that's like a Warren Buffett quote. And I think it's, it's, it's meaningful to me in that I think we're going to see probably more of that. Um, whether it's the, we saw the UK pension fund stuff. We saw this, I think it's just, like you said, there's more than one cockroach. Keith. Yeah. Um, again, like we're pretty agnostic towards these markets. Um, if, for whatever it's worth, we, we have not bought any, any of the cryptos, uh, you know, in our business or, or personally, I, I've not touched them. Um, but again, this is the view from, from us as managing money. Uh, we, we've we've been interested in this for a while, so we're always watching any kind of a market for for an opportunity. Uh, but from a very plain, simple perspective, I know it's a very complicated world, and people can roll their eyes, you know, if I talk about it because you know I don't know anything about it. However, what I do know is for, for, for this market to heal itself, it has to attract new money into it. So you need to convince you know investors like me that hey, it's it's safe. To come in here, um, and you know, at one point, uh, you know, we, we have a, a target I, I had now for for a while, and uh, we're we're getting closer there. But when, when I see events like this happen, it, it just forces me to pause and say, you know, what? Well, like investing is hard enough as it is. You know, you, you want something to move based on the way it should. But when I see all these other shenanigans happening underneath, uh, it, it gives me very low confidence that that's a market I want to participate in. So what's positive, though, that it is getting cleaned up and cleaned out, you know, and some some folks are losing their money. Um, but, you know, <laughs> this is a pretty, pretty big black eye on, on that market for people like me who haven't touched it. Does that make sense, Steve? Yeah, yeah I, think- I, think it's, I think it's a really good point. I think it's a brilliant point because I think like, you know, someone I've been, I've been in the crypto space, like small. I mean, again, I'm not an expert in crypto, but I, I understand enough to, to, to maybe be dangerous, I suppose. But, uh, you know, I, I think that 
what we've seen over the last 12 months is just, I think, really discouraging. I think it's going to, I think it's going to weaken adoption and, and really impair trust. Uh, it's going to be hard to, to recover from this. They, I think it's going to recover. I think you're going to see more regulations. Uh, what we're seeing is a lot of these entities that are actually blowing up are not really like U.S. regulated. They're actually like set up in the Bermudas and whatnot. Um, that I just think this is, it's it's interesting, right? Like we had Celsius blow up. Uh, now you've got FTX blowing up. But people in the crypto space are saying that this this FTX event is the largest crypto event it's larger than mount gox which is the last exchange i believe mount gox is actually a canadian exchange that blew up like what six seven years ago um so they're saying that this is actually a larger event but i think anyways ftx has something like an eight billion dollar shortfall here um so i think a lot of depositors are going to be on the hook speaking of uh money on the hook we um you know on this ftx event it was actually the ontario's teacher's pension oh, plan yeah. that was uh, an investor in, in FTX. I think they had deployed a couple hundred million dollars. Again, a couple hundred million dollars, Keith, I'm sure you can comment on this, is, is very small potatoes for the Ontario teacher's pension plan. But I mean, it's it's probably being written down to zero. And I don't think it's, I don't, I wouldn't say it's insignificant. I mean, it's still money that's that's gone up in flames. I mean, it, it's it, again just being sort of pragmatic about it. it it's it's tough for them because it's one of the hottest new markets. All this innovation and deep thinking, you know, there and you get groupthink taking place. I mean, they have to participate in it because if they don't, they're they're losers. That's what happens. Um, and whenever you invest money, everything isn't a winner. That's why you have a very good strategy. You know, you're diversified, risk control, and everything. So, you know, maybe the amount they allocated, it, it's just, you know, it's minimal. You know, it's not a big amount. It sounds a lot to us, of course. But, uh, you know, that I, I don't know how big the teacher's plan is. Um, it may be Rich can check it out real, real, real quick. Uh, but it's, it, again, you know, it, it, it happens. You know, it, the optics are not good at all. So uh, they have to deal with that, but you know. Okay, so can't, well, I can uh, tell you it's, it wor- it's worth two 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 twenty billion CAD, but I'm sure yeah, they I've had a lot two- invested in bonds, so it's definitely lower than that now. <laughs> <laughs> I got a two hundred forty Canada's third largest pension fund, the OTPP, overseas two hundred forty two billion uh, invested in FTX trading in twenty twenty one as part of a four hundred twenty million dollar funding round. So. Um, small potatoes, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, but to, to Rich's yeah. point, right? When you got $240 billion and you're mandated to be in a certain amount of bonds that are getting eviscerated as well, it's probably been a tough year for, for a lot of these pensions. There's maybe a, they could another... have bought maybe could have bought student debt, for example. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but again, it's uh, not fair. Again, like when we're managed, like we we lose money as well. Like when we're investing, things go up and down and everything. Uh, it's, but, but the way that world works, there's, they're always looking for the next big thing. And, uh, I think what we're learning that a a lot, a lot of pretty smart, uh, firms out there and investors were in this, you know, that they're taking some losses and a lot of small investors as well. So like, it's, it's not a fun day for anyone. So let's just, let's just be clear, I guess. There's one more thing I wanted to add with the, with this FTX thing. I think, for me, the it, it sort of draws a red flag because I think regulators and people like Rushi Sunak, who is the prime minister of the UK, who loves 
um, central bank digital currencies will may go use this as some kind of excuse to say, see, this can only work if it's under the control of the government. And I know maybe that's a bit tinfoil hat for a Thursday afternoon, but um, I just that's for me, that was like one of the kind of uh, things that I worry about, which is they'll sort of use this. The whole point is that it's deregulated, you know, that it's um, what is it called? DeFi, you know, um, decentralized yeah, decentralized finance. And the fact that I could just totally see a politician using this as an opportunity to say, we need to centralize this. <laughs> well, um, the, the CEO of Coinbase actually made a good argument on Twitter. Again, obviously, he's probably pumping his own bags, but he was like, listen, like all these big blow ups you're seeing of these exchanges is, is there other offshore exchanges. Um, because the regulations sort of domestically in the U.S., there, there, there's no there's no crystal clear sort of regulations. It, it's very murky. It's hard to understand. So all these companies are setting up these operations sort of offshore where there is like there, it's the wild, wild west and people are going and depositing their money there. So he's arguing, you know, that we need to sort of have some more sane, uh, you know, policies um in North America, so we can have properly regulated crypto institutions yeah. uh, and safeguard people's money. So, like I said, most of these blowups you're seeing are not U.S. regulated um, crypto exchanges. So, anyways, take that for what you will. Um, but I think the other big news here we got to jump over to is everybody's favorite CPI inflation data. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, Rich, maybe I'll let you uh, take that one away. But the markets, um, I'm not sure what they were pricing in or what the expectations were, but CPI inflation on a year-over-year basis for the month of October coming in at 7.7%. Uh, markets obviously loving that because uh, they're, they're up big time today. So Rich, maybe if you want to unpack that a bit further. Yeah, sure. I mean, the markets are up because of this, you know, it, it's this hope, it's this hopium that we've been talking about for the last few months, which is, um, um, which is that, you know, if, if inflation's weaker, then the Fed will slow its, its, um, its rate hikes or stop its rate hikes or pivot or God forbid, even cut. Um, and so that that's why the markets are up. I think the, the tech is up 5%. I mean, it's just absolutely, oh, 6% now NASDAQ composite, which is quite an, an absolutely incredible, incredible number. And bonds are also up. So just remember, so bond yields um, go down and bonds price go up. So the bond price is up, meaning the yield is down. But anyway, just to quickly go over the numbers, I mean, the headline was 7.7. Interestingly for me, services, which is something we've talked about being very sticky, came down to 7.2. Um, something we've always talked about a lot, which was the um, which is the co other core components. Um, they also, I mean, this is, I mean, it depends on what you're looking at, but like core X shelter, which is 5.9. So that's now you're starting to, you've really peaked. You've definitely, that trend is quite clear. Other things that I, I looked at is again, the shelter component. And there we have some bad news for all the people who think that, um, that inflation is going to roll over and head back down to 2%. Like I've seen some models floating around on the internet. Um, shelter component rose again to 6.9%. And remember for, you know, sorry to, we keep repeating this, but shelter is 41.6% of the core basket. And so that's where, I, that's why, you know, to me, to me, I would, I mean, I know it's not investment advice, but I'd definitely be fading this tech rally. I just, I, I still, although I believe that we've peaked in inflation, I think the idea that we're going to snap right back down to, uh, to 2% um, and all those idiots who said it was going to be transitory will, will be, you know, sending me emails and I saying, I told you so I, I don't buy it. 
um, core inflation is still 6.3%. And the other thing, and the final point I'll, I'll say, which, and then I'll, I'll happily hand it over, is for me, we talk about different ways of measuring inflation. And one of them is the median CPI. And again, it's that breadth, it's sort of a breadth measure of your inflation. So it's sort of, it's another measure of sort of central tendency. What is like the overall trend? And although it did stop rising like precipitously, it's still 7%. And I think that that's like a meaningful number and it tells you sort of the underlying speed. I mean, there's obviously things like used cars um, and et cetera, et cetera, that really cratered. Um, but yeah, that, that breadth measure to me is that Cleveland Fed CPI, and we'll share it um, in, in the video, is that's the one I, I'm really keeping an eye on. Keith, you have any it's comments? Not... Yeah, that's pretty good, Rich. You did, a, you did a good job this time. It was oh. good. <laughs> this time. He's such an ass. <laughs> um, the, uh, you, you didn't leave out anything. Uh, you know, we actually even used the, the phrase I would have said as well. Like, I, I would fade this rally today as well. Um, so, so from from a, a different perspective here. So today we have equities are rallying, and bonds are rallying as well. And that that in this environment, one of them is wrong. Right. So when equities are rallying, that that implies, hey guys, inflation is going to go up. So you think the Fed are like in this rally today? No, no way. No. Because all of a sudden the wealth effect is going up, the confidence data is going to go up, and, and all this this stuff. So the Fed is saying, "Oh boy, we were not the least bit happy with this." And then the other side of it, if, if bonds are going up in price, or the yield is coming down, uh, that's deflationary, right? That shows, hey, we're going into a recession. Um, and and the Fed they would somewhat like that, right? If they want to create that recession, you know that, that's what they're trying to do. So let, now let's let's switch back to uh, like the, the main point uh, why everything is rallying today because the the actual numbers month over month, core year over year, uh, they were all better than estimates. So remember earlier, you know we were talking about the Canadian jobs data, you know that it was ten times above estimates. Um, the, the American inflation data this morning, like it is within one to two decimal points of what was expected and what the actual number was. And just to be two decimal points away. So for example, to be uh, the actual, uh, year over year number was 7.7 and, and the estimate was 7.9. And people would say, man, that's splitting hairs in the investment world. That's a huge beast. Like that's unbelievable. Um, but in a Canadian market, 10 times, hey, you just, you know, that, that's fine. Um, but the other thing here that that catches our attention right now, you know, again, you're going to see the Fed and Powell, he's going to come out again, guns a blazing saying, I don't know how many times we have to tell you you're, you're not listening. We are going to continue to hike rates until we believe that this has been been cracked in, in two. Because he keeps going back, referencing the whole Volcker experience we talked about last week. He hiked rates, and then he cut them, and then he had to you know hike them again. So they, they don't want to repeat that mistake. Um, so here we are today. You know, It's a pretty good risk-on day, which, which is great, because you know, we're all making money. And who doesn't like to make money, right? Um, but I, I do suspect this is going to roll over uh, pretty soon. Can I just add one way to prove that we why it's 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 a purely based on sort of Fed expectations and it's something we prove it who knows but this is why I'm like quite certain that this is true it's because earnings just continue to e deteriorate um, and without those earnings 
your P is your right. So you have a price earnings ratio. And so if your E is flat or going down, it's your the value that you're willing to pay for that earnings, whether it's a forward earnings, it's next year or the year after whatever, or your trailing earnings. But your P as part of that PE ratio is fluctuating wildly and it continues to be the driver of returns. Because if you look at the earnings, whether it's an earnings model, earnings estimates, and even in the US, you have you know, the 12-month forward estimates of the S&P 500, for example, they're starting to roll over significantly. So if I had to bet on which one was right, the bond market or the equity market, for me, this today would be, I'd be betting the bond market's right. But um, that's just, just important to remember that. Sorry. Yeah, Keith, or sorry, Rich, I was just going to say on your shelter inflation thing, it's I'm looking at the, the chart we have in our group chat there. Um, it's definitely... You know, yeah, it's sticky, right? I mean, it's it is what it is. Um, I just find it interesting, like going back to sort of like our conversation earlier, which is talking about inflation, the data, and then looking at sort of like the anecdotes. And I, like I said, I think we've chatted about this in the show before, but it was what a month ago, where like you had your three largest residential REITs in the U.S. coming out and saying that their rent growth is is flat to to falling in in some of these big cities. So I, I just think it's going to take a while for that to probably show up in the shelter component of inflation. But to, to me, is. I think a lot of that is, again, like in the, in the housing data front, like you're looking at a lot of these like benchmark indices. And then then you see like you chat with like a developer on the ground or you're chatting with people on the ground. You're like you're getting much, much different information than than what is being shown in these these models. But just to provide more context on why I think you're right. So full stop, you're right. It's a lag. These are kind of our, it's important. Remember, these are sort of lag indicators and they turn often much slower, you know, than, than we might be seeing on the ground. But I think I would just re remind people when it comes to the US, US market, it's much different housing market than, than Canada. So even though we've seen some of the housing association data crater, the, there's two things that I think will support house prices in a way that didn't in the last cycle. One is um, literally supply. So there's something called existing months supply, something Steve is obviously very familiar with. And it's uh, for existing homes, it's very, very low. It's been, it's as low. I'm trying to find the chart quickly while I speak. It's been, it's as basically as low as it's, it's ever been. Um, I'm looking at it right now. It's at basically 3.1 months. Just to give you an idea, um, you know, in, in 2007, it was 10 months of supply, right? Um, and the other thing that's really important that will, I think that will keep sort of the, the a floor on house prices is vacancy rates. And again, these vacancy rates are at 25-year lows for both homeowner vacancy rates and rental. Now, the counter, of course, is you could say, well, you know, there's people who bought second homes and with mortgage rates rising, they won't be able to sustain it. Again, the U.S. is different than Canada. Those second homes were bought when mortgage rates were 3% for 30 years. So this is like the best trade some of these people have ever made. And as long as they keep being employed, which is, of course, a big if, I just don't see the, the, uh, the forced selling that you've seen in other cycles. Yeah, so I think that's just a good, good point. I think there is actually a quick, quick distinction uh, between the U.S. housing market and the Canadian housing market. So my understanding in the U.S. is when you buy a house there, let's say you bought it you know, a year ago, you, you, you did a 30-year fixed at 3%. It's like the best trade you're ever going to make. Um, when you go to like move, let's say you want to upsize to a different house, you actually have to, my understanding is you break that. There is no porting a mortgage. So you break that term, that three-year 
3% on 30 years, and you now have to go and lock in, you know, say 7% today on 30 years. So most people are like, well, I'm just going to stay put. And so inventory that would normally come up on the market, like there's basically just like, no one wants to, to basically move. And so those people stay put, whereas in Canada, right? Like we port those mortgages. If you locked in a five-year fixed mortgage last year at 1.5% and you want to move, you just port it to the next house. You know, you typically have 90 to 120 days to make that port, but it, it, so it's a, they're very, very different dynamics. Um, it's the same in the UK. You can port your mortgage in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think that's, and then again, it's obviously, Hey, we've, you know, for your longest term here in Canada is basically five years that you're just always susceptible to, to rates yeah. in five years, which I think you become much more rate sensitive. Where the housing market will really affect the, the U S I think is, you know, con the construction industry is an enormous part of that country's economy. Um, you know, I, I think it's something like I can tell you right now, the construction industry is, you know, 7 million people out of 153. So it's, you know, this includes non residential and residential. So I mean, that's where, you know, things can maybe get a little dicey. Um, but remember, they have a much, much lower debt to G household debt to GDP number. Um, and residential capex has basically been flat. So you, it's just the go ahead. Sorry. Well, sorry, I was gonna say, but sorry to interrupt you. But by the way, I don't know if you looked at so the resale data you have there where the pain you're seeing is in new home inventory yeah. Yeah. is I think yep. they're at like nine months of supply right That's now, right. which is obscene because what happens, right. Is like, unlike a homeowner, like developer has to sell that product. And like, you really don't have much room to cut prices. Everybody thinks developers make like boatloads of money. Like if you've actually sat down and looked at a performa in like Vancouver or Toronto, like the returns are actually not that great. Um, so there's actually not a lot of room to actually reduce the prices. And not only that, but like your lender who's giving you the, the loans for the construction financing, for example, like they have a say in that. You can't just start cutting your prices. It's not that simple. So it's it's actually like the spec builders, the new home builders, the construction industry that's going to get creamed here. It's not like your your average homeowner. That's my view too. And just by the way, just so you know, you're exactly right. It's for uh, US home supply for new homes is 9.2 months which is basically as high as it was in 2008, nine. And we all know what happened or most of us know what happened after that. Hey, hey Rich, I have a, a somewhat related question for you. Uh, what, you know, where you're there in London now, like what, what are, what's the average person talking about economically? Cause you know, the, the prime minister or the, no, the bank of England just said, Hey, we're going to have the deepest recession of 40 years. Are, are people talking about that? Are they experiencing yet? So I, you know what the truth is, I don't know, but I have a couple of points that I can share. Number one is consumer confidence measured by GSK, which is like, um, which is like a survey company is basically as low as it was during the pandemic. So the people are not happy and inflation expectations and inflation is, is largely in my view, the cause for that. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, there's different ways to measure inflation expectations. There's like financial situation. Are you going to buy something next month or whatever? I mean, one of these, one that I'm looking at right now, the, the, the consumer confidence for the next 12 months is the worst it's been in 25 years, worse than 2009, worse than 2020. And it's just basically terrible. The funny thing is, is that there's the job market is actually still hot. So you've got things like vacancy rates relative to the people who are unemployed is still really high. Um, you've got like, and it's so it's and then you have like wage growth is like actually sort of okay. 
Um, maybe maybe is that not a lagging indicator too, though? Yep, sure. But I know what I was going to say is, and then the the anecdotal evidence is you've walked down my high street. There's like every single, like not every single, but there's at least honest to God, like 10 different shops that say like help wanted, please apply within blah, blah, blah. And so don't get me wrong. I think that the UK is in in deep trouble. I don't think the Bank of England says something like that without meaning it. I, I don't think they were just, they're quite... I think that they're quite um, calculated in their messaging. And I think they're trying to provide people clear uh, sage advice, which is they're terrified about what's going to happen to this country. But at the same time, <laughs> London is its own beast, right? And it's it's like a weird... So that's why I'm con- I'm confused, frankly. I have these like super, super negative indicators, which of course I'm not or- ignoring. But then there's like a couple of these positive ones that are, screw it all up. Imagine, hey, Steve, imagine that. Rich is confused. <laughs> Oh, you're so mean. I mean, house prices are uh, definitely falling or starting to roll over. Um, you know, just one thing, maybe for next week, you can break down how these confidence uh, models are actually calculated. So just so people have a better appreciation, because, for example, the stock market uh, <laughs> no, it is actually more interesting than the diffusion index. But maybe <laughs> next week uh, we can break down how these confidence uh surveys are actually broken down so for example you know, the stock market does have an impact on what number is so if markets are doing well people feel happier and, and so forth yeah. uh there's something for next week but i think steve you had one more thing or do we have to wrap it up yeah uh, we're gonna we wrap it up but i was just gonna quickly comment uh i've brought him up before but he's a great follow on um on twitter craig fuller so he's the the freight freight guy so he's uh he just keeps commenting on on sort of freight shipment costs and and what the you know the volumes at the, these shipping uh, facilities and whatnot because um, that's really like a great indicator of of demand for for goods um, and so he's saying the deterioration in freight markets is now triggering large layoffs. C. H. Robinson is laying off twelve hundred folks today, the largest layoff I can recall at a freight broker ever. Uh, that's from Craig Fuller. And then, of course, if you saw in the news as well, uh, FedEx has also been cutting flights and parking planes to curb costs in the face of weak demand. So, I mean, I think that's pretty telling, again, like whether that shows up in the actual data or not. But to see um, some of these large companies, parking planes, shipping rates moving down, I think is an indicator that demand is pretty soft heading into what apparently, I mean, well, not apparently, it's pretty obvious, the, the busier time of the year typically for goods, right? You've got Black Friday coming up. You've got Christmas, Boxing Day. This is this is prime time for a lot of retailers. And um, I think it's it's going to be interesting. So that's, that's kind of where we'll leave it for now. Um, as always, we appreciate your guys' support. Uh, all we ask is that you give um, Leave us a five-star review. Give us some comments, uh, Spotify, Apple, as we continue to grow the the podcast, the Looney Hour community. And please share this with at least one friend or family member. And we'll see you next week.